Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Salute. Slancha. Cheers. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Woodenville Wine Country, here on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and events with your guide, Master of Mixology and Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. So sit back and stir it up. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on 570 KVI. Hey, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. It is 11 o'clock in the Pacific Northwest, and it is Happy Hour. I am your host, Christopher Chan, Advanced Sommelier, and your Master of Mixology, Commodore of Cocktails, and uh, your host for today's show. If you're out there in the Twitter sphere, you can find me at Happy Hour Radio, Happy HR Radio. Or if you want to send a question, check out our website at happyhourradio.com. It is summertime. June is finally here, and I'm very excited because that means it's time for pink wine. Rosé. i got a great show featuring Rosé today, Um, and uh, I've got uh, uh, Master Sommelier Eric Entrekin, who is uh, currently with the Wines of Provence, and he has some great wines we're going to talk about, about the region and their history and what makes these wines so delicious. And Eric Entrekin, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, um, so you are a master sommelier, something that I am so excited to be studying for. I've got eight months until February next year. Uh, when did you earn your MS master sommelier degree? Um, I took my first exam in 2009, and then I, f- I finished in uh, 2010 in February in Napa Valley. It is a journey, isn't it? It is a journey. It and is a journey, yeah. We yeah. have uh, a great community here in Seattle with 26 green pins. Fantastic. And all these great MSs, obviously Shane and Greg and Chris and uh, Joseph and um, Angelo Tavernero. Do you remember that name? I do remember that name. He's yes. over in uh, the east side of the hills and taking care of uh, some vines and uh, teaching people uh, all about uh, the the great works that Master Sommeliers do. And now you are with the Wines of Provence. Yes, I do a little work with them and um, you know, we've been traveling around uh, kind of Informing people about the differences and kind of characters that maybe they may not know about Provence Rosé. There's, you know, several subzones in the area. They kind of provide different characteristics to the wines. And so um, I think when people think about Provence Rosé, they just think pink. You know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's great. That's great. But um, at the same time, you know, there, there is like subtle differences in the wines and uh, makes it more interesting. Well, they are very interesting wines. And we're speaking for all of the happy hour listeners out there. We're talking about France. We're talking about La Sud de France, the south of France, the great cities of Marseille and Cannes and Nice, that very nice place, Nice. And this is an area called Provence. You've, got, you've maybe heard of the herbs de Provence and uh, the wines of Provence uh, are red, white, and rosé. So um, tell me about the grapes and some of the history and winemaking there. Well, history goes back, you know, millennial in, uh, in, um, in Provence. I mean, basically, you know, the Phoenicians were in this area and basically, you know, you could go back thousands and thousands of years. But the Romans were really the ones who kind of took the took the ball and rolled with it across Provence. Um, for that reason, when you look at like the rules as as they stand for you know what's approved for, for Provence, it used to be like fifty different grape varietals, and they've kind of like started <laughs> to bring that down a little bit. But for the most part, um, you know, if you're looking at Cote de Provence as an appellation. Um, you're looking at basically Grenache-based or Cinso-based rosé wines. There's other grape varieties in there as well. 
Um, if you get to Bandal, you're talking about Mouvedre, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's basically those two grapes that are the primary drivers for Provence Rosé. Grenache and Senso. Grenache and Senso. And these are red grapes, of course, and that's how we get the color in Rosé wines. And uh, So Grenache is uh, predominant in, well, I understand most Rosés, are, are all Rosés a blend in Provence? Um, they can be. They can be. They can be monovarietal too. Um, there's there's not a restriction on that. But um, you know, there's other grape varieties that come in there. There's Tiboulin, which is a very interesting grape variety. It provides kind of savory uh, complexity. Some producers are uh, taking Roll or Vermentino, and they're bl- basically oaking that a little. bit. Is it bit. called Roll? It's called Roll. Roll. R O L L E, which yeah. is uh, let the good times roll. And yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so. Um, most of the, we also have red wines, and are those red wines typically blends, or do those have monovarietals as well? They're typically blends, the red wines, yeah. Um, but um, you know, I, I see very few monovarietals. I think people like the idea of blending there, so it's just something that they do. Yeah. But I, monovarietal more in white. I think Vermentino as a single varietal, or Roll as a single varietal, it's the same grape. Sure. Um, that you know you're seeing more people kind of respond to using that as a as a single varietal there. And how large is the uh, Appalachians of Provence? I know there is Cassis, Bandol, Cote de Provence, Bas de Provence, and just Provence AOC, right? So there's four small sub-Appalachians, which is, like you mentioned, Bandol, Belay, um, Bandol, Belay, Palette, and uh, Cassis, right? And so they all produce much smaller levels. The actual Cote de Provence area is, is fairly large. Um, there's two other regions inside that, uh, regions around that, Cote de Varois and uh, Cote d'Aix-en-Provence. Ex. And, and those, are, uh, those are kind of a little bit further to the west. But when you look at Cote de Provence as an appellation itself, it's the largest producer of rosé. And actually, 90% of everything they produce there is, is rosé. That's their focus. And it's so awesome because it goes so well with the food, whether it's the mussels or the steak tartare and the, just the garlic and the aioli. Mm, it's fantastic. And you've, produ- you've brought uh, two wines, uh, and I'm speaking with Eric Entrican, Master Sommelier, uh, who is currently with the Wines of Provence, and he has brought two pink wines. Or is it Pro d'Ognon? Pearl de Onion. The colors, uh, it's a little copper. It's just a little brushed copper or just a very faded pink uh, salmon or coral. Um, Well, which wine should we try first? I see you have two. Uh, Probably the Ax. Ax. Yes. Okay, and this is just an A-I-X, pronounced X, and it's a lovely bottle. You can't miss it. This is just hitting the marketplace now. I've seen it uh, actually last week and before, um, and the sun is shining. This is nothing better to have a nice chilled bottle, a uh, chilled glass of rosé. So tell me about this wine. Well, Axe is, um, you know, Cote d'Axe in Provence is, is an area that actually does a little bit more blending, and they have, um, they're not as reliant on Grenache and, and Cinso, so they have actually some cab and some other things in the Appalachian. But um, I've always found, uh, you know, the wines to have a real kind of delicate nature. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned about the color because Provence uh, Wine Institute has spent like, I don't know how many years just studying color and what's the most appealing color to people. <laughs> and they found this like really, like you said, this perlognon, the, the, the salmon pink or coral color to be uh, what people really love. And uh, it's interesting about color because the Champenoise are very interested in colors. Obviously, they have make rosé champagne and um, a little different method, typically. Mm-hmm. So tell me, how, what is the method for uh, rosé production in Provence? All rosé in Provence is done through maceration. So it's basically um, you know, a, a certain degree of skin contact uh, with, the, um, with the juice prior. Uh, and usually with these really lighter colored ones, it's prior to any fermentation going on. So basically, mm. they, they do a, a, like a... a 
you know, three to six hours of skin contact prior to it actually fermenting. They call that a cold soak, but it's so warm in Provence. I don't know if it's actually cold. Thank God for uh, temperature control fermentation uh, devices these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. They've done a lot of work. And that, I think that's really improved the quality of Provence. Sure. Well. Stainless steel and good hygiene helps uh, make wines commercially viable across Absolutely. the world. Absolutely. So we have this uh, lovely pink color wine called X, and uh, it's just three letters, A-I-X, which is a... Uh, well, it's a region, right? It's one of the sub. Yeah, Axe Ax is one of the sub regions there. Yeah, it's around the. There's actually a city there named Axe. So, oh, yeah, that's cool. Lizzie mm-hmm. Borden's from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, this is a blend you were saying. Yeah, it's a blend of uh, uh, Grenache, Cinso, and a few other grapes they have uh, in it as well. Um, but it's just got it's really kind of like. You know, it, Provence rosés actually kind of have the refreshment of white wine. I almost think about when I'm drinking them, that kind of refreshment you'd get from Sancerre or, you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or something like that. But then it's got all these different kind of flavors that go on. So you get some of the peach, that kind of strawberry notes, a little bit of cherry com- component coming through there. Um, and definitely from this area, a lot of that Herbe de Provence or kind of... Uh, you know, herby note. There is a very um, herbaceous, uh, I'll call it a tint to the to the aromas, to the wine, and also to the flavor. But what strikes me as very interesting is just how bright and fresh the acidity is. Yeah. And it, it, it seems counterintuitive because it's warm down there. How does that happen? Is that grape variety? Grape variety and harvesting temp. Well, not really grape variety, but more harvesting temperature. You know, they're trying to harvest at cooler times, um, and they're also getting the grapes right in. Quickly, they're chilling them down to maintain the freshness in them before fermentation. Well, it's interesting. When I, um, it's hard to believe that the those wineries must be far up in the hills because some of that <laughs> that waterfront property is uh, probably a little pricey to have a winery. Surprisingly, there are several wineries like right around Saint Tropez. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's uh, and there's a completely different soil type there. So the the, the um, the Massif de Moray, which is this major hill um, cluster, this major mountain range, uh, basically is, is schist, which, you know, you think about schist, you think about Priorato and, and Ribeiro, you know, uh, Duero uh, uh, Valley in Portugal. And this is an area that really provides this kind of interesting, some of the wines out of that area, I don't think either one of these are, are from that area uh, today, but uh, some of the wines actually have this slight petrol note hmm. that uh, is really interesting to me, but... And that's a lot of discussion when we just diverse uh, on a tangent to the Mosul, because yeah. petrol, obviously, in Riesling is known, and they've done some research about whether it's canopy management or just reductive winemaking, and I haven't studied that yet. But uh, So sometimes there could be petrol in this. And there are multiple styles or, or, or types of soil throughout Provence, correct? Yeah, mostly in the inland valleys and kind of the hillsides, you're looking at more kind of a clay limestone soil, very similar to other places like Burgundy or maybe in um, certain areas like that. Uh, when you get to uh, like that kind of Massif de Moray, a lot of the soil changes to the schist and a crystalline kind of soil. And so there's two different, like there's kind of almost a dividing line. There's, a, there's an interior valley that's a little too warm, and the two areas of Provence are kind of separated between the area that kind of falls like underneath the Alps, hmm. the foothills of the Alps, and the area that's right at the coast. And if you look, I mean, if you were to take a, you know, take a, a pencil from Bandal and draw a line right up that central valley, that kind of separates those two uh, two major soil types there. Interesting. And uh, speaking with Eric Entrican, Master Sommier, who is uh, working with Wines de Provence. And if people want to find more about, we have a website that they can visit uh, on Wines de Provence? Yes, the Wines de Provence, Vendre de Provence website, yeah. Right. Google search would send you right there. Perfect. Winesofprovence.com. It's that easy. Wines of Provence. And you have the other wine here is also um, a little darker hued wine. This has more of a copper brilliance to it, I'd say. 
Yeah, it's a little bit darker. Um, so probably, obviously, a little longer skin contact. Um, and mm. you can tell that just on the nose right away, there's a completely, almost like a little bit more, there's a slight uh, uh, ripe, there's a higher degree of ripeness to this wine, I mm-hmm. would say, definitely. More the red fruit. More the red fruit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but de- almost like a like a kind of a, a a red apple component in it as well to me. Interesting, mm-hmm. um, and it just on the palate, the acidity is bright, not quite as bright as that X, the first wine, but there's certainly a lot more flavor here. There's uh, complexity. Well, it's interesting you say that because there's you know the development of rosé, and this is a 2012. Okay. First one we had was a 2013. So you see when it's that really fresh component. Mm. And you see the development of rosé. And most people don't want to, like, hold rosé for very long. No. I want to um, open it now. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to hold rosé. But you see how on the back end of the palate you're getting a little bit of, like, a honeyed component a yeah. little bit, you know? And it's just they can be so interesting with a couple of years of age on them. And I was in, actually not Provence, but I was in the Rhone Valley a while back and uh, in Tavel and another great rosé-producing area. And they had... Uh, a ten-year-old rosé that they tasted us on, and it was it was fascinating how it developed all these kind of really interesting toffee and caramel flavors after being aged that long. At the Very water. cool. Um, I always associate that with some lees contact, just some of that autolytic character. But well, it's it's more. I mean, it's just more aged to me because yeah. I mean, most of the rosés lees contact. You know, I'm not really seeing that much there unless they're doing it maybe with Vermentino to get mm, more weight in yeah. that wine, and then they're blending that back in with rosé. So uh, is it is it best to buy a fresh rosé for most people, or we or is it okay to buy the? These will age, right? I mean, they do age. They'll age well. for a few years, yeah. Okay. But they they definitely you see how dramatic just one year difference makes in 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 the change of flavor of rosé. So it's an it's a wine that ages rapidly. Not that it's getting bad, but that it ages rapidly. But just a flavor profile. Changes. And what is the second wine called? Uh, the uh, La Mascaron. La Mascaron. La Mascaron is Côte de Provence. So it's Quatre Saison. Yeah. And this is, uh, so Quat Saison is Four Seasons? Four Seasons, yeah. <laughs> Good, I know my French. Yeah, yeah. And so these two wines are distinctly different from different areas, correct? Yes, they are. Um, um, Axe is from Axe, and I'm thinking at... Um, it's a beautiful wine, very Luke and so fresh. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's more on the coastal um, area, or kind of like on the border of the Inland Valley. Oh, so cool. Well, I love French wines, but I also love uh, uh, rosé wines because you can just chill it and swill it, and it has complexity. It's, as you said, it's very refreshing, and this has been a real treat. Eric Entrican, Master Sommelier with the Wines of Provence. I urge everyone to drink pink, think pink, and enjoy the fresh and fruity flavors. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, coming up next, we'll be uh, back with some great guests. And also, uh, uh, I'm going to finish this pink wine. And uh, I'll catch you on the flip side on Happy Hour Radio. Woodenville Wine Country is Seattle's big backyard, and spring is the time to enjoy it. With over 100 wineries and tasting rooms, plus microbreweries, distilleries, and dining, Woodenville has a taste for everyone. Go to WoodenvilleWineCountry.com for details on events, tastings, releases, and more. Hi, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio. If you love wine as much as I do, you'll join me Sunday, June 15th for Swirl Washington. I'm talking about a trip to Spokane to join Washington's greatest wineries. Taste wine, enjoy a deluxe room with the Davenport Hotel and Towers. Swirl Washington, Spokane's greatest wine event. Tickets available at visitspokane.com. Swirl Washington, Spokane's greatest wine event. Sunday, June 15th from 5 to 8 p.m. Visitspokane.com. Hey, this is Chris Gorman from Gorman Winery, and you are listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. 
The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 5 to 9, only in Seattle on Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. And welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It is Happy Hour in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm very excited. Uh, love those pink wines from Provence. Thanks, Eric Entrican, Master Sommelier. But it's my pleasure to introduce uh, one of my longtime friends in the wine biz, uh, Mr. Doug McRae, who's a New Orleans native, I believe. But let's check it out. Doug McRae, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you very much, Chris. So, uh, NOLA, New Orleans native, is that true? Yeah, Big Easy. The Big Easy. That's what Yeah, I grew up so next cool. to the track, watched the horses race, all that sort of stuff. Uh, ever been to a little uh, restaurant over there called Luiza? Uh, you know, I was just in New Orleans last month, and there's so many fantastic places to go. Um, I stumbled up and down Bourbon Street for hours and hours. I just couldn't find every place. <laughs> it's a little bit out of the quarter. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, you're, it's, this is like uptown, but... Uh, if you're ever back, I got to make sure you get the address and et cetera, and know how to get there because uh, I don't think there's a better gumbo made in New Orleans than there. Mm. Well, you know it's funny because I think I, I tried to reach out to you. It's like, who do I know? I went to Kevin Davis over at Steelhead, and he was at it. Someone's right. got to hook me up. But uh, so happy you're here. Uh, you, when did you get to Seattle or to Washington? Came up to Washington State uh, about two weeks before uh, St. Helens blew its top. Uh, that would be May 3rd. 1980. Mm-hmm. 1980, right? right. May 18th. That I was remember. quite an adventure. <laughs> it was. Those were the good old days. Who's selling ash anymore? I wish I would have had some. I'd be, you know, hey, it's the anniversary. Well, um, were you were you fermenting stuff down there? Were you imbibing? And how did you end up from there to here? Well, actually, it's all kind of ironic. Um, I, I, I think I've been sort of on the wine trail, so to speak, since New Orleans because Growing up in that city, I mean, it's all about food and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my family on my mother's side uh, were in the restaurant business. So that kind of helped. Um, we, we sort of meandered ultimately out of New Orleans, ended up for a few years in Austin, Texas. This was all a result of my father's work. Yeah. And then ultimately he was promoted to a job in San Francisco, moved to the Bay Area, lived there beginning in 1962. And, of course, we lived actually very close to the Golden Gate Bridge, so um, found ourselves wandering off uh, north to Napa and Sonoma um, because, of course, everybody in the family loved wine. And I think there may have been about 15 wineries in the Napa Valley at that time, as I recall. That's right. Buena Vista, Charles yeah, Cruz, exactly. uh, uh, Boyo Vineyards. Rem- yeah, remember Green Hungarian? <laughs> I don't. A little before my time. That was Buena Vista. <laughs> was it? The Green Hungarian? Oh, yeah. That was a biggie at our house. Oh, funny. <laughs> Funny. So, um, did you find the wine bug in uh, Napa, or did you have another in- vision? Mm, I had the wine bug long before that. I think from being in New Orleans, but uh, then I was, you know, moved to the mecca, so to speak, uh, and that that certainly had its uh, effects. I actually uh, was not making wine whatsoever. Um, my background, my credentials, my degrees, and all that good stuff is in music, and in music education. Oh. Um, taught in the Palo Alto School District, taught community college, um, did undergraduate work at San Jose State University, did some graduate work at Stanford, um, and um, never really thought about making wine until I moved to Washington. And I, you know, I ran into some of these guys that were beginning just, you know, when this is, we're talking about the mid 80s, early to mid 80s. And I'm looking at this, you know, fledgling industry and thinking, boy, this could really be something. Really? Yeah, the potential just seemed to me like a very good one. 
Um, one thing led to the next. I spent uh, lived very close to uh, the Galitzins, Galicia oh, Creek, up in uh, Snohomish. Then, mm-hmm. yeah, just a couple miles north. As a matter of fact, ironically, the same guy built our homes. They look like <laughs> you know twins. Um, got to know them well. Spent some time uh, at the winery. You know, being sort of a you know a hand, whatever was was necessary, and basically just experimented a little bit in winemaking uh, in the mid the, to latter eighties, and then ultimately. Um, Produced my first wine in 1988, which was Chardonnay. Really? Along with Merlot and Cab. And it was under, did you label it, or was that just something in the uh, the basement? The Chardonnay, well, initially, um, no, I was just making wine in my garage. You know, the garage east. The kind garage of east. Con- yeah. The garage east. And then that sort of grew into bonding, and uh, in 1988, then the first Chardonnay of McRae Cellars. Um, 89, I discovered Grenache, Garnacha, uh, down in a little vineyard in the, in, in the Columbia, in the gorge, uh, Columbia River Gorge, across from the Dalles, Oregon. There's a, a place to, uh, called Dallesport. And, uh, this yeah. old Dufford, uh, Don Graves, uh, had this vineyard that, that he and Walter Clore planted. Uh. And when I got there the following year in 89, I think those vines were at least 20 to 25 years old. That's cool. Is it still there? The vineyard's still there, do you know? I believe it is. That's great, because uh, Grenache was one of the early Washington commercial grapes, right? Chenin yeah, Blanc, Grenache, yeah. Riesling, Absolutely. and Semillon. Where are yeah. they now? Well, apparently from what I'm hearing, Grenache is making quite a comeback. <laughs> it or, is making a comeback. Coming, coming from somewhere. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have Doug McRae, who uh, is the founder of McRae Cellars, and now he has a new project called Salita Wine. But before we get into that, um, you were... you. Russian rubbing elbows with the Galitzins, who've done quite well with Cab. Did you make some Cab back then? I made some Cab and Merlot, uh, and uh, when I discovered the Grenache, I went, I'm selling the Cab and the Merlot. I'm on my own. I'm off and doing a, you know, a new discovery. That's just kind of been my nature of all my life in winemaking. Um, there was nothing seriously going on at that time with, with Grenache. As a matter of fact, ironically, David Lake uh. Uh, had had some of the grapes from that very vineyard. Because I remember in the lunchroom, there was a picture of uh, Don holding this enormous cluster of Grenache. And I have no idea why it was there, but it was, because I used to spend a lot of time around Columbia Winery and, and with David and the, and the guys there. Um, I was fascinated with the grape. I already had known it, obviously. So it was just um, an opportunity that I just couldn't give up. That's really cool. And, you know, is Grenache a large cluster? I know that Zinfandel can be really huge, but is Grenache one of those uh, varieties that produces big, big fruit? It's really relative uh, to how the grape is treated in the vineyard, clearly. Um, I've, um, Don's, Don was kind of a, one of these guys that supplied grapes primarily to home winemakers, and he thought the bigger the better. <laughs> so, you know, one of those kind of things. Yes, and we, uh, that we've seen that throughout the uh, the wine industry. That's like Central Valley stuff, right? Yeah, yeah it was big. a lot like that. Um, so, you know, we, we did a, a few things to sort of see what we could do to sort of alter that a bit. Um, but um, on the other hand, I've worked with Grenache clusters that look like about the size of a hand grenade. Oh. So it really has a lot to do with the irrigation and probably clonal, although there's not as much, at least at that time, there was no clonal choices uh, right. on the whole. Not a lot of science back then. I mean, no, it was just the whatsoever. nursery, the Washington State University no. nursery, and Walter Clore, and uh, who was the other guy? Clark, right? Stan mm-hmm. Clark. Stan Clark. Yeah, the godfathers of our industry, Yeah, which is really cool. So um, you're in Washington, you got bonded, and you started McRae Cellars, and that was in 1988 Eight. or 89? 80, 88. 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, you... 
we're very I admire the whole McRae Cellars uh, winery, and they're still here. Um, Bob and Sunil, of course, West Seattleites, some friends of mine. Uh, you, you were a champion of Syrah for a long, long time and did, did quite well. Um, we know the story of Syrah. Syrah is back. It back is booming. It had that little... What do we say? It's called a dormant period. Took a dip. <laughs> the dip, the wavelength. Yeah. Um, actually, the only Syrah that, that you know, sort of precluded ours, again, was David. Red Willow? Yeah, from the Red Willow Vineyard. And I talked Don into planting Syrah in that same vineyard next to the Grenache in 1990. So actually, to my knowledge, we were the only two producing, uh, commercially producing Syrah. Well, that's, that, that's cool. And so you are, um, and Red Willow Syrah's done. They're they're done making that, aren't they? I have Colum- no idea. Columbia is done with Red Willow. Probably, yeah. They uh, gave up the fruit. That's amazing. It is. They you know rebranded it. They got bought up, and that's right. another story. We won't go there. But I'm um, excited to have you uh, on board, and uh, you've brought some wines, oh, the Salita wine label. Uh, this provides you, as you said, a, a new venture, a new expression for your winemaking style. Tell me about the origin of Salita. It actually happened on a lark. A friend of mine whose uh, name is Phil Klein, um, <laughs> you probably know who he is. Yeah, the Big Cheese Red. Vineyards. Yeah. Yeah, those rose-tinted sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. Phil and I have known each other for quite a few years. He called me up in uh, September of 2006, and he said, Hey, Doug, I've got a winery that left behind a ton of Tempranillo. Would you be interested? And I said, you know, of course I'm interested. So he said, listen, I've got to come over to the West Side, so I'll be over with a, a ton of it tomorrow. I went, great, let's do it. <laughs> and I had no idea what would happen. That's like Domino's. You could pick up the phone and get some, some grapes delivered. Well, I love the story. I want, when we come back from this break, I want to dive into some of your wines, and uh, we'll learn more about the, the Salita Wine Company and, and how you've got these grapes and, and what number we can dial. It's like the bat phone, I think, right? You pick up the red phone, and you want grapes, and you just right, you got go, the Gotham City. To high. the source itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, come Coming up on the show, I've got Wes Henderson, uh, the man behind Angel's Envy Bourbon. And, of course, their fantastic rye. Um, they got port pipe finished. they got a rum cask rye. And what I heard is they have a cask-finished rye or a cask rye, uh, excuse me, a cask bourbon, but it's all gone. So when we come back from this break on Happy Hour Radio, we'll dive into some uh, Doug McRae's Salita wines and uh, lick our chops for some of that Angels Envy Bourbon. Hey, if you have a question, don't be afraid. Send us an email to ask at happyhourradio.net. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio. If you love wine as much as I do, you'll join me Sunday, June 15th for Swirl Washington. I'm talking about a trip to Spokane to join Washington's greatest wineries. Taste wine, enjoy a deluxe room with the Davenport Hotel and Towers. Swirl Washington, Spokane's greatest wine event. Tickets available at visitspokane.com. Swirl Washington, Spokane's greatest wine event. Sunday, June 15th from 5 to 8 p.m. Visitspokane.com. Woodenville Wine Country is Seattle's big backyard, and spring is the time to enjoy it. With over 100 wineries and tasting rooms, plus microbreweries, distilleries, and dining, Woodenville has a taste for everyone. Go to WoodenvilleWineCountry.com for details on events, tastings, releases, and more. Hi, this is Dennis Cakebread with Cakebread Cellars. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio on 570 KVI. 
Lars Larson has the real story. Weekdays, 6 to 9 p.m., only on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Talk Radio 570 KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, that is me, your host of Happy Hour Radio, and welcome back. It is Happy Hour, and I'm here with Doug McRae of Salida Wines, the man behind the McRae Cellars label, and now off on his own venture, SalidaWine.com. Check it out. So, Doug, tell me more about Salida Wine. Well, I think one of the important things to express is that if you consider Spain, uh, truly the three primary red grapes are Tempranillo, uh, Garnacha, or Grenache, and the grape, uh, the Spanish call Manastral, which the French call Mouvedre. And, of course, it also goes by a third name, which is Mataro. Mataro, right, from Australia. Well, not exactly. No? Any more than <laughs> Syrah from Australia. Shrez. <laughs> Shrez. Well, so we've what, got what three grapes. So what happened is I, I, I had been working for quite a long time, obviously, with, you know, with Grenache. And then uh, with Jim Holmes uh, planting uh, at Ciel du Cheval on Red Mountain, we began making Mouvedre, we'll call it that. Um, so I've had a, a lot of years uh, working with those varietals. And then, of course, in 2006, uh, the Tempranillo dropped in my lap. So that completed the triangle of you know the three, the three power grapes, so to speak, uh, of, of that nation. Was the 06 Tempranillo some of the oldest? Because it's a rel- very new grape. I know that my family's growing Tempranillo in Walla Walla, mm-hmm. um, as well as Morvedra and Grenache, for heaven's sakes. How about that? That's really cool. <laughs> cool for me. Cool for you. Yeah. Um, 2006, where was that Tempranillo from? A vineyard called Tucayote, which oh, is yeah. located uh, sort of northwest of Zilla. And that's uh, uh, Mike Andrews, right? Is he part of that? No, Coyote Canyon. He's, no, that's Coyote Canyon. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, there's another little wine up there by the name of Knight's Hill. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. So that's, that's it. And actually, uh, when I first started, uh, this is what is known as Clone One. The Tempranillo? Correct. Okay. Now, if you go down uh, to Abacella Winery in Oregon, um, he has about seven or ten clones or something to that and effect in the ground. Earl. Earl Jones. Earl Jones, Exactly. Yeah. Um, here in Washington, our, you know, we plant based on what we're allowed to plant because of, you know, issues with um, bugs, you know, yeah. various viruses and things of that sort. So predominantly in Washington, there have only really been two clones available, clone one and clone two. <laughs> There is a third one, the Toro clone, um, because of from the actual region of Spain. Yeah, okay. Tinto de Toro, uh-huh. um, because of various things that happened at the nursery. Uh, the Toro clone has never really gotten off the ground, although there is some. Um, ironically, the clone one also never really uh, has been disseminated that greatly. It's now becoming a little bit better. So the clone two is the predominant one, and that's the one where you know you would typically see relatively large clusters, the very kind of pointed versions. Right. However, the clone one would probably remind you more of looking at a Merlot cluster. Relatively small, medium to small berries. Again, it's all about how you grow the grapes. Mm-hmm. Tends to be a very tight wine on the whole, and I'm learning it. You know, it's like anything else when you make wine. You have to have s- several years to really determine, you know, how are you going to get the results you want to get and balance out what you like to do with you know what's acceptable and uh you know by the public and all the rest of the things that come with it so over these years that we've been doing this now for about the past eight years it's expanded out into about uh, five or six reds and uh, two whites it's really exciting and i know that uh, tempranillo is a fascinating grape especially with all the uh styles in spain and they've been doing it for a hundred plus years or even more than that of course um and i'm really excited i i 
I need to have you back. Um, will you come back next week and chat more about these grapes? And I'd like to dive into your wines then. Is that cool? That'd be fine. I would love that. And uh, speaking with Doug McRae, uh, his wine, uh, new label is called Salida Wine, S-A-L-I-D-A wine.com, Salida Wine.com. Check it out online. Um, we have, uh, uh, tell me the wines we've got, Albarino to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Albarino, Tempranillo, and uh, a blended wine that I make, uh, which is, it's a blend of Malbec and Tempranillo. Uh, that I named Fuego Sagrada by sort of um, hanging around very late at night on the web. (laughs) This is fun. You're a kick. Uh, So good to see you. And I will look forward to uh, diving into these wines and checking back with you next week. So, Doug McRae, thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you, Chris. And Wes Henderson of AngelsEnvy.com, you make some great bourbon. I want to welcome you to Happy Hour Radio. And it's great to be here, Chris. Thank you. Hey, so you're in Louisville, Kentucky right now? That's correct. The nice, uh, hot and humid, sunny, muggy Ohio River Valley, that's where I sit right now. I'd love to be out your way, though. (laughs) We've got a little bit overcast. uh, Well, actually, it's sunny skies on this beautiful Saturday here on Happy Hour Radio. Well, I'm really excited about Angel's Envy. I've had the pleasure of tasting uh, your fine whiskey about two years ago when I think it just came out. Is that true? Tell me about Angel's Envy. We launched... Nation, well, not nationwide. We launched about four years ago, and we came to, to your neck of the woods about two years ago. So we, we've only been around for a few years. I mean, the project started about eight or nine years ago, but you know, to launch, it was just four years. So in four years, we've covered a lot of ground right now. I think we're one of the fastest-growing small-batch bourbons in the country and certainly one of the highest-rated, uh, thankfully, one of the highest-rated bourbons in the country right now. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And what got you into the dis- distillation business? It goes back probably to as, as early as I could walk. My father was a master distiller for Brown Foreman for 40 years, and Dad created Woodford Reserve, Gentleman Jack, and Jack Daniels Single Barrel was in charge of all their whiskeys worldwide for a real long time. So my earliest memories are actually going to work with my father and the aromas of fermenting mash. Those are some <laughs> of the first childhood aromas I remember. Wow, and they say smell is the most powerful memory we have. It is. You know, people talk about grandma's apple pie and, and all those things, but truly what I remember, and every time I walk into a, a room where fermentation is happening, it takes me back to when I was little. And same way walking into a lab. I, you know, I go to work with my father in the lab, and you know, I'm sure the, the other lab people hate me to this day because I go in and monkey around with the lab equipment and <laughs> you know, do, do crazy stuff. So it's, it's, it's my blood. It's been, we've been doing it for a long time. Well, interesting. My parents are physicians, so I got to play doctor uh, early on at the hospital myself. Um, but so you, you had some tutelage, you had some lineage, you got some chops, uh, you launched Angel's Envy. How would you come up with that particular name? The phrase Angels Envy, the name Angels Envy, Envy is based on the phrase the angels share. So you're probably well aware of that, but just to quickly tell the listeners, is when you know, we put bourbon in a barrel, you lose about 3 to 5% a year to evaporation. And we call that the angel share. We're sharing that with the angels. So the premise is that they get their share, what they don't get, they're envious of. Ha, ha, ha. Got it. All right. Well, I'm pretty envy because I got two glasses of this beautifully colored whiskey. Uh, so for all of our fans out there on Happy Hour Radio, let's talk about bourbon. Bourbon is, by law, 51% corn and aged in new American oak, uncharred. Or wait, yeah, new American white oak, right? For one year minimum, two years for straight? Well, there's no minimum aging to call it bourbon. Uh, really, once you put it in that, that new charred oak barrel, it's considered bourbon. But if you if you want the straight designation, you have to have it in there for two years. 
If you want to bottle it without an age statement, it has to be in there for at least four years. I see. And so tell me about Angel's Envy. The first whiskey I have here is the bourbon... Wait, port pipe finished, right? You've got... Well, actually, let's step back. You've got three whiskeys, correct? You've got a cask finished. Well, tell me what you've got. <laughs> we, we have three three products now. We have our, our port finished bourbon, which will be the first one we'll taste this morning. And then we have a cask strength version of our port finished bourbon, which we can talk about a little later on the segment if you'd like. Paul Picault named that the number one spirit in the world last year. And, and then we have a rye whiskey, which is finished in Caribbean rum casks, which takes on a, an amazing life. And we can talk about that when you taste that as well. So right now we have three. Oh, well, they, they're, I've had them. They're fantastic. I haven't had the bourbon cask or the, um, or the what's the second one in the port pipe? Port finish. Yeah, the, the, the cask strength. Cask strength. I have not had that one yet. But uh, let's, let's talk about this, uh, this first one I have, the bourbon. Tell me what flavors okay. I'm going to enjoy in this whiskey. You know, on the nose, and, and I think first and foremost, when people see a bourbon finished in port casks or anything that's related to port, the first instinct is that it's going to be very sweet. And, and, and it's not the case with Angel's Envy. What we set out to do was we set out to create a bourbon that had some, uh, some characteristics of that port finish, some subtle nuances from the port finish. So first and foremost, you're going to taste this like a bourbon. You know, and on the nose, you're going to get those wonderful notes from a bourbon. You're going to get those caramels. You're going to get a little bit of woodiness, a little bit of smokiness. You're going to get, uh, I get, I get banana on Angel's Envy, uh, some vanillins, definitely some, some vanilla. So on the nose, you're going to achieve those notes that you would typically see in a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. One thing you'll pick up that you don't normally see in, in bourbons or whiskeys would be that the, some dried fruits from the port barrel finish. So you might pick some of those up on the nose, but where that's really going to come into play is when you taste it. So we wanted a bourbon that had a slight influence from the port barrel finish, not a bourbon that tasted like port. And I think you'll understand what I'm talking about, you know, your, especially your listeners when they when they taste it for the first time. Yes, it's uh, it. First of all, it is it has a good weight to this whiskey. This whiskey has a good weight. It's uh, a moderate plus weight. Um, it has just a little bit of wood tannin. But I'm curious, so is it a a tawny port or is it a ruby port that you've added to for the finish? It's a ruby port, uh, ruby port barrels that we're using. Um, and it's, uh, you know, so that's really, that's where the dried fruit comes into play. You're not, like you said, you're not getting a lot of tannin. You're getting, uh, and, and, and it's a relatively young bourbon. It's a four- to six-year-old blend, relatively young in terms of age. Now, we don't talk about age as, we, as much as we do as maturity. But what that port barrel finish does is that really elevates the taste profile to where, you know, the mouthfeel and the flavor and the texture almost seems like you're tasting a bourbon that's more like, you know, six or eight years old. Well, it's delicious, and uh, when we come back from this break, uh, I want all of our listeners to jump on to angelsenvy.com and uh, investigate these, well, you know, what the angels are envious of. It's a fantastic bourbon. I'm speaking with Wes Henderson, and you're the global brand ambassador for Angels Envy. When we come back, Wes, I want to dive into this rye here on Happy Hour Radio.
Hi, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio. If you love wine as much as I do, you'll join me Sunday, June 15th for Swirl Washington. I'm talking about a trip to Spokane to join Washington's greatest wineries. Taste wine, enjoy a deluxe room with the Davenport Hotel and Towers. Swirl Washington, Spokane's greatest wine event. Tickets available at visitspokane.com. Swirl Washington, Spokane's greatest wine event. Sunday, June 15th from 5 to 8 p.m. Visitspokane.com. Hello, I'm John Patterson with Patterson Sellers. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio on 570 KBI. The home of the great one. Mark Levin. Weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I am in heaven with Angel's Envy. I've got Wes Henderson, the uh, Global Brand Ambassador and Chief Innovation Officer. Wes, uh, glad you're on Happy Hour. We've just enjoyed a taste of your port-finished bourbon. I wish we had some of that cast strength, but it's so popular. Apparently, it's sold out across the country. Is that right? That's correct. It, It sold out generally within 48 hours after it was released. We had stories of people following the the delivery trucks to the liquor store to get uh, to get it. So it was a it's almost a, a kind of become a cult, you know, class, you know, not really a classic, but a cult favorite right away. Which we'll be releasing that again uh, over the Christmas holidays in September or October. So you know, for for those that might be interested, that now's a good time to start you know, planning the logistics on how you're going to, what <laughs> tactics you're going to use. How to track to, a truck, to, is that to, it? To cast strength. Oh, too funny. Well, I'm going to befriend your whiskey guardian, George Engelstad here, who's one of the cool bartenders up here in the Seattle market, uh, and make sure we get our uh, little order in early. If we're been a naughty or nice, I don't know. We'll figure that out later. But uh, tell me about this rye whiskey. You've got a uh, an amazing idea here. This is innovation, rum cask rye. Yeah, it the rye has really become a, a, another phenomenon for us. It's, it's doing real. It's doing phenomenally well in the marketplace. And the, the premise was we wanted to release a rye whiskey, but we wanted to be different, like we have with everything else. And the way the process evolved was, is we you know we know that rye is typically a spicy distillate, so rye whiskey has those, those really spicy notes. And and we thought it might be interesting to marry those spicy notes of the rye with the sweet notes from a rum barrel finish. So I literally sought out 150 different rums until I found the one that, that I liked the best and felt would complement the rye whiskey the best. And we decided to, to finish the rye in those rum casks for 18 months. So it's, it's a seven-year-old rye whiskey, 95% rye mash bill, and then an additional 18 months in the rum cask and and the rum casks from plantation rum it's very interesting how the lineage of those rum barrels they started out as cognac ferron barrels and that's barbados right i'm sorry is that barbados or martinique well the the uh the plantation xo 20th anniversary is a barbados yeah i remember you nailed Uh it and it, it just worked you know the danger of doing that was it could have been a mishmash of flavors right you know it could have everything could have canceled out but what we did is we were able to get it to dance between the sweetness and the spiciness. And we released it at 100 proof, which most people would never know if I hadn't have told you that because it's so smooth. So at 100 proof, and I think that was a nod to, to the bartenders and the mixologists like George there. Um, we know that rye is used a lot in a lot of cocktail creations. 
and we wanted to kind of pay homage to to those people creating those cocktails, so we gave them a little sturdier, a little higher proof distillate to work with. Well, it's amazing. I just had a sip, and the spiciness of the rye is truly balanced by the sweet Caribbean flavors of the the, the trop. It's, it's a little coconutty, um, just a touch of cognac. There's there's a little French oak. Um, it's amazing product, and that is truly innovative. Uh, congratulations on this tasty stuff. What does this stuff retail for? I know Washington State is so. <laughs> we're like ant. We're uh, we got so many syntaxes up here. We should be the new Vegas. Well, you guys need to stop spending so much. You don't have to worry about it, right? Well, uh, yeah. now look, it uh, our bourbon, our port finished bourbon uh, comes in generally in the mid forty forty dollar price range. Let's say forty five to forty nine. Our rye whiskey, our when the rum barrel finish is anywhere from usually seventy five to eighty five dollars. You know, for seven fifty, our cask strength, the one that Paul Picault named the number one spirit in the world, retails for I think one fifty nine, and it comes in a really nice wood gift box. It's a, it's 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 a great gift for the holidays. Well, it's a good gift for any time, really, for birthday uh, anniversary. Uh, the stuff is fantastic. Congratulations on truly some world class whiskey. Um, I I haven't had it in a while, and I'm so glad that George is here. To, to pour some samples for me. Wes Henderson, the, uh, what do you got in the, in the future? I got like just a touch more. Tell me what the secret is out there for you. We're still experimenting with a lot of different things, different barrel finishes. It seems like that's one of our fortes right now, and that's where we're kind of leading the pack. We're building a new distillery in downtown Louisville, which will be open sometime next year which will really give us even more innovative capabilities. We'll be in a much larger facility and uh, the ability to play around with different mash bills and and different, uh, we'd like to look at some historic recipes and maybe revive some historic recipes, things like that. So there's, there's still a lot of green fields ahead for us right now. You know, we've only been out for four years. And we think we've got a few more tricks in the bag. <laughs> the future is bright. Wes Henderson, thank you so much. It's angelsenvy.com. I appreciate you spending some time with me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks, Chris. So uh, coming up on next week's show, I've got uh, um, Paul Greggett, uh, who is the man behind Wastebrook Cellars, Lucia Ramos of Lustau Sherry, in touch base with, uh, get back to my friend Doug McRae with SalitaWine.com. Hey, thanks for joining us on Happy Hour Radio. Uh, remember, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.